This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. From MPB Think Radio, this is Money Talks. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotcher-Janderson, President of New Perspectives and Ryder Taft, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. They're both chartered financial analysts and Ryder holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. Buying a car is a major purchase, so today we're going to talk with Joseph Yoon, an insights analyst from Edmunds.com, about the car buying process. We hope to talk about financing, the car buying process, and some of the new technology showing up in our cars. So if you have a question about car buying, you can email money at mpbonline.org. Uh, Joseph is on the line with us. We'll get to him in just a minute, but we always do start the show with uh, financial news in the news, and we have a caller uh, that wants to talk one of the big things in the news this week. So let's uh, say good morning to John. Uh, John, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Well, hello. For an old guy like me, it's always interesting to encounter an unprecedented situation, and I, I think we have. I have some questions from the news. What Uh happened to Silicon Valley Bank? Did the Federal Reserve do it? Who pays to fix it? And what will happen to the fight with inflation as a result of this? Well, let Uh, me just start by saying it's not unprecedented. We've had bank failures in the past, but this is a very particular one. Uh, yes. So what if just for the broader audience, Silicon Valley Bank was actually a fairly large bank. It was the sixth largest. And if you had never heard of it, that's because we have a million banks here in America. Uh, they were heavily concentrated in the tech sector, uh, as the name may imply, Silicon Valley Bank. And so those were both their deposit customers and very often their lending customers. So they were lending to people against their tech company shares, even their private shares. Uh, and then the, they were keeping a lot of that money as deposits in the bank. So Basically, their assets and liabilities were highly correlated to tech. I I don't want to minimize this, and I don't want to sound like it's just a totally isolated incident. If any bank had the level of withdrawals in a single day or even over a short period of time that that people are reporting that Silicon Valley Bank did, there would be serious problems. Um, However, I do want to be clear. There are some very unique risks that this bank face. Um, To your question specifically, did the Fed do it? No. Uh, What happens to the Fed? Well, they did have a little bit of a role. Well, the changing interest rates, yes. yes, But, uh, you know, that's uh, a bank should be able to manage those risks. They should. What they couldn't manage is, again, 50% of their deposit base getting on a single WhatsApp chat and saying, hey, boys, let's take the money out. Like and these, these were big depositors. These were large Huge deposits. startup companies that were pulling their yes. money out. So that makes them a little different from a lot of banks. They had one of the lowest insured deposit ratios. Uh, you did ask who pays for it. So let me just kind of go over just a couple things that are happening. So the FDIC is stepping in. So when a bank is failing or fails, the FDIC steps in and they 
Uh, well, I was just going to back up and give a little history of the FDIC. Oh, sure, yeah, and then I'll and then I'll talk about why what yes. they're doing is so cool. So the FDIC came about in 1933. Of course, we had a stock market crash beginning of the Great Depression through the 30s, um, and so this was passed as part of the Glass-Steagall Act, which governed regulation of banks. It created an insurance program which banks must pay into. They pay into the premiums. You as a depositor don't pay directly for it, even though it's built into what you earn it's on part those of the accounts. the cost of banking. Exactly. The cost of doing business there. And uh, we just had uh, at the top, uh, Trustmark is a sponsor. It mentioned they are FDIC insured. And so that gives ins- uh, depositors some security in knowing that if the bank fails, because we had a lot of bank failures during the Great Depression, that their money was secure. When it first began... Do you know how much you uh, had in insurance on each account? Was it like $10 or something? It was $2,500. Yes. Oh, that's not bad. Yes. Now, it gradually increased over the years until it got stuck in 1980. At one hundred thousand, and um, so um, it stayed there until we had the financial crisis. It in went 2008. to infinity. <laughs> no, not, well, it did, it did recently. It did, it did. <laughs> uh, but two thousand eight is when we realized. You know, we haven't adjusted that amount in a long time. There are a lot of small businesses who keep more mm-hmm. than that in cash. They need protection, so it was temporarily bumped up to 250000 and then in 2010, the Dodd-Frank financial reform bill, which included a lot more regulation which because of what happened in 2008, where banks were taking on lots of risk and doing strange things, um, it bumped it up permanently to 250000 But that doesn't cover a lot of these big businesses right. who were doing business at Silicon Valley. They had millions sitting there, mm-hmm. and they also had millions in credit lines the bank was being offered to them. Yeah, um, that 250000 is going to cover you and no, I. And yeah. I'm, I'm guessing most of our listening, if you don't, you know, call in and talk about your experience with uh, FDIC limits. Well, and also back in 2018, well, let me back up. Late 90s, uh, we had repeal of most of the Glass-Steagall Act because this is what we do. We don't realize how important it is to have a well-regulated financial system. Once we get rid Really comfortable wearing our seatbelt and driving safely. We, stop we, we start it. thinking, why am I wearing this seatbelt yeah, and driving so? What's the purpose so, of it? Why don't I like push a little harder on this pedal, huh? And that has what has happened through the years. And so we gradually pulled all that back. Then we have 2008. We have a new bill. We're going to regulate these banks more thoroughly. And then in 2018, Congress pulls back regulation a lot of the medium-sized banks, which is where this bank comes in. <laughs> So the FDIC does a – I think it's really impressive how the FDIC does this. Bear in mind, Silicon Valley Bank closed branches, I believe, Thursday, maybe Thursday afternoon, maybe after business closed Thursday. So they're closed on Friday. On Friday, I'm fairly certain if you walked up to your Silicon Valley Bank and tried to take out money, they just the doors would have been shut. The FDIC came in over the weekend, branches opened at start of business on Monday. How does the FDIC do that so fast? That's an incredible feat, right, to, to take – an absolute chaos situation, and then just business is normal the next day. FDIC requires every bank over a certain asset level to have a plan on file with the FDIC that, that they update fairly frequently that covers 
how to unwind this bank if something happens. So they have a, it's called a resolution plan. You can actually look up parts of the public resolution plan. It's not the interesting parts. It's not the parts where they tell like how to do it, who's got the keys, things like that. But the FDIC does have a plan. So they just roll up. They have that thing printed out. You know, someone pulled the binder off the shelf and they're like, all right, great. Like, let's, let's open it back up. But this was a case where the insurance for 250000 so, was not enough. So the what do they do? insurance was not enough. So they got together with the, the Treasury and the Fed and they decided, you know what, let's raise it. Let's let's insure all of the deposits. And let's I know, write them a blank check. Well, no, no. Let's bail a, them a out. Of, no. A lot of people are saying, oh, this is a bailout. This is protecting the depositors. This is protecting the people who just, all they did was put money in the bank. Now, now some of them, of course, were engaging with other banking products, but we're not talking about the people who were taking a risk by investing in the bank. We aren't talking about people who are taking a risk by lending the bank money in other ways. We're talking about depositors. And um, businesses who are paying payrolls. Businesses paying payrolls, which I think one thing about this is that has come particularly to light. It's very easy to say, oh, goodness, who would need over a quarter million dollars worth of insurance? But when you realize so many businesses might have their entire banking relationship with this one bank, and you realize that's where their payroll money comes from, that's where money to pay their vendors comes from, then all of a sudden, you might start thinking, well, gosh, you know, these are companies with very large payrolls, because maybe they have a lot of employees, uh, or they have to pay a lot of people in some way shape or form, you start to realize maybe it makes a lot more sense. I actually think that the raising the deposit insurance is is a great idea and that it could be really good for smaller banks who you might have a little less. If you're looking at a huge bank, you, you can be fairly confident in, in them because some have kind of an implicit guarantee. But with smaller regional banks, you might be thinking, oh my goodness, is my money safe? And the best thing the government can do here is just say, yes, your money is safe with this bank. Um, so but ultimately, this was a bank that was taking undue risk. Yes. And ultimately, the regulators, whether it was because they were told to back off or they weren't paying attention, um, that's how they got into such a bind. Yeah. They were very concentrated on the tech sector. And and not just the tech sector, <clears throat> on uh, specifically, startups. Yeah, the number one – so I did spend the weekend reading their latest annual filing, and their number one risk that they list is we lend to unprofitable – and uh, money losing businesses. Wow, who can do and that? And we, de- a large amount of our loans depends on more investors putting more cash into these companies and then bank- being able to pay us back. And last year, you saw a lot of those valuations of private companies going down. And so they weren't having those, they weren't having those new investor cash. They weren't having that new investor cash come in. They weren't having those exit opportunities. So that was a big part of their banking. Uh, That is probably why they had the cash crunch they had. They did have a lot of other assets, but, um, the Fed and the FDIC, it looks like they think there's going to be good enough and enough assets to cover all of the deposits, which is good. And, and that's what banking regulation may – the main part when we talk about capital requirements is you've got to have more assets than you have in deposits. Sometimes those assets go bad, but hopefully they don't go so bad that you can't cover it. And ultimately, investors were concerned because they were afraid this was going to spread to other banks mm-hmm. and we were going to have 
have a uh, a banking wide yep. issue which would affect our whole economy. Mm-hmm. And what we have seen is our bigger banks. Uh, a lot of these other banks are coming out to show that they are very strong and good mm-hmm. stead, and we have no concerns at this point. And that's right. the benefit again. The FDIC stepping in to make sure people don't need to withdraw, and then the federal. Reserve making sure that banks who have maybe illiquid assets or, you know, just assets that are down just because the interest rate environment, making sure they have plenty of access to lending facilities, which is a pretty big, fairly normal thing to do. They're just making it a little more generous right now for banks. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Our website, moneytalks.mpbonline.org, is one way to hear past broadcasts. You can also download the MPB Public Media app and listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand to all the local MPB Think Radio programs. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives and Ryder Taft, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. We're joined today on the phone by Joseph Yoon, an insight analyst with Edmunds.com. Joseph, uh, thanks for agreeing to be with us this hour. Uh, Start off, if you would, tell us what sort of information is found at Edmunds.com. Good morning, everyone. Um, uh, On Edmunds.com, we have car reviews and rankings and videos, so you can research cars before you buy them. We also have offer ratings. So if you look at a listing on probably our millions of newer used car listings about where the pricing from that dealership falls um, in terms of the rest of the market trends, whether you're getting a good deal, a decent deal, not so decent deal maybe, or a great deal if you're lucky. And to kind of top things off of that, uh, we have tools to calculate your budget, so you know, finance calculators and whatnot and also an instant online appraisal tool so you can get a quick idea of what your current car is worth if you have a trade-in. Lots to talk about. Let's uh, start by talking about financing a car. Um, Do you think it's a good idea to get pre-qualified with a bank or a credit union before searching for heading to the dealership? I think that's a great idea, especially in the current interest rate environment because the captive lenders don't have really great rates right now. So if you can shave any amount of points off the interest rate from a bank that you're familiar with or a credit union, I think that's a great idea. Um, Some manufacturers are offering better interest rates in certain cases, but that generally means you have to be shortening your interest uh, loan term significantly. So from what we've seen, an average car loan is about 60 to 70 months, but these promotional interest rates are for 36-month loans, 48-month loans. And for a lot of people, that's not an affordable option. Uh, so let me ask our financial folks here. When it comes to getting pre-qualified for something like that at a bank or a credit union, how does that work? You go in there and say, hey, I want to buy a car, and they say, we'll give you – I mean, how does it all work? Basically. A lot of times uh, the bank or credit union will want to know either details about the car. Uh, is it a new car? Is it a used car? Some even I've, – I've seen kind of the online estimates where you even just go in and type the VIN, the vehicle identification number, which – you know, it's fairly easy to get, but that would give you a very that would give you a much better idea of what they can offer you there. Which means that pre qualification may not work because you have to know what am I going to buy. If you're just shopping, yeah. shopping, you haven't settled. Yeah, you don't, you don't you have anything not. definite. 
But they can give you an idea of what they're offering to a person like you. Right. And often credit unions are a great place to go, especially if you are working for an employer that offers a credit union and they know they can do a payroll deposit or payroll Mm -hmm. deduction on those payments. Um, There's some incentive there to go ahead and give you a loan. And it's often one of those products that is used as kind of one of those teaser products to bring you into a bank. They'll offer they'll offer some good rate. Uh, you only have to open up a small account with us, and and once once they've got you new to the you know a, a good rate for a new customer. And so that once they've got you into the bank, they hope to they hope to attract more of your deposits. And that was and interesting uh, what Joseph said because you know we went through this long period of time during the pandemic where people couldn't get cars, mm. couldn't get new cars, couldn't get used cars. And uh, suddenly I'm starting to see those ads with special financing, but I didn't realize until he told us this, that that's on a shortened term. So most people are always looking at, well, what's my monthly payment? Mm. What can I live with? Mm-hmm. And so if that's what they're giving up, they're probably going to end up with a higher interest loan. So, Joseph, are uh, car supplies getting better? As Nancy said, it was kind of rough during the pandemic. To I know my brother uh, tried to buy a new car and, and found very few cars on the lots. Is, is that changing? It is changing slightly and little by little. Um, it also depends on the manufacturer. And so you really have to kind of find out for yourself, depending on where you're shopping and what you're shopping for. It is better, definitely, than same time last year um we're not exactly sure how quickly it's going to get better but we'll have to see there's a lot of obviously with the economy being the way it looks like right now especially with what happened with the banking situation and how consumers feel about that that'll have an effect i think on Mm. how many people go out and buy cars and so that the supply chains from what we've seen have been improving. I know automakers are absolutely scrambling to improve that situation, and a lot of them have. It's just a matter of will they get to the lot before you know somebody buys it out. This is Money Talks. We're talking today with Joseph Yoon from Edmunds.com about the car buying process. Uh, Joseph, one of the other options as opposed to buying is leasing a vehicle. Is that something, do you think, that the average car buyer is – a, a good idea for it? Maybe, again, let me rephrase that. What are some advantages and disadvantages to leasing a vehicle as opposed to buying? Sure. I consider myself an average car buyer, and I've been leasing vehicles for about 10 years now. And I think the biggest advantage is that you get a new car every three years. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say a lot of financial professionals would say that's somewhat irresponsible. And i Generally, tend to agree, but if so you're why do you do that? <laughs> he, he just loves that new car. You like the new um, car smell, right? I mean that that I is a compelling do, reason. I but I do, um, and I think another big thing is that sometimes you know life happens faster than you might expect, and it does offer you a little bit of flexibility instead of being tied to a five, six, seven-year loan. Um, oh, so you mean like like you might have had a sports car and now you need a minivan? Exactly, Uh-oh. exactly. There we go. Uh, that's, yeah, that's exactly what happened to me in 2021. Um, <laughs> baby. There it is. We had a baby, so I had to uh, get an SUV like every other parent on the planet. Well, one... One good thing, one thing I've noticed sometimes with leases, maybe not particularly right now, but 
mm-hmm. because it is effectively a way of financing a car, then manufacturers will offer fairly attractive lease terms. Yeah. And I have yeah. seen lease terms such that your total all-in cost, if you were to buy the car at the end of the lease, would actually be cheaper than financing it. Um, yeah. And and that was certainly the case when you know, the cars were everywhere and super easy to find. I imagine it's a little different right now. But the idea mm-hmm. being that the, the car maker is, one, they're moving a car today, and they're still pretty likely to move another car to you, like you said, in three years mm-hmm. when you when you go for that upgrade or whatever. And, and at that point, kind of the used car, it's somebody else's problem at that point. But when you yeah. lease, uh, aren't there uh, mileage limitations? Not so much anymore. No? Sure. Uh, there may still uh, be. I, he, go ahead, Joseph. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, generally, you get 10,000 miles. That's not much. Are. That's not much, especially in Mississippi. Okay. Uh, mm. You know, um, yeah. we drive a lot. We yeah. drive a lot every day just to get to the office. So yeah. um, for a lot of people, and especially if you have a type of job where you use your mm-hmm. uh, vehicle, that's not a lot of miles. Yeah. So that's a big disadvantage if you're leasing. And that's something you have to take into consideration because a lot of most leasing programs top out after 15,000 miles a year. So if you're driving, oh, wow. okay, I didn't realize that. So if you're driving over 15,000 miles a year, then you're getting charged generally somewhere in between 25 cents to 50 cents a mile on top of that at the end of the lease that you're on the hook for. So if you're, if within a three year span, if you're driving over 45,000 miles leasing, definitely not for you. Yeah, I'm just looking at mine that is about three years and has about 55,000 miles on it right now. Um, So that's a problem. Somebody likes to drive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do drive. Yeah. Yeah. And also, Joseph, I guess, too, you have to keep up with uh, the maintenance schedule if you were leasing a car. Is that right? Correct. Most modern cars these days only really require maintenance maybe every 10,000 miles. So you're only going in maybe once a year for most customers, but you are on the hook. A lot of luxury makers will kind of throw in maintenance as part of the whole, I guess, luxury experience, but not everyone does that. And Hmm. generally within the lease term, of course, you're not going to incur massive, massive maintenance bills because nothing's really worn out yet. But again, it is something that you have to be on the hook for, but it's also true for a new car, right? Like it's not like you're not, getting your oil changes and things checked out because it's a car you own. So, But, Joseph, your, your aim should be to eventually not have a car payment. And, you know, Correct. I'm, a, I'm, I'm a lot older than you are, and I do, mm-hmm. re, do remember when cars did not last that long. You know, we all got in the family car when it rolled over 100000 because, like, that's it. The wheels are going to fall off. <laughs> and yeah. these days, I expect to drive my car 7 to 10 years. So exactly. um, that makes it more beneficial for me to just finance straight up front and then eventually be without a car payment. Correct. And that's exactly what everyone should do. Except you well, like new cars, right? Exactly. <laughs> but I, and another thing that, um, that leasing is good for before the whole car shortage happened was a lot of the times you could get into – a car for noticeably cheaper than straight financing. Uh, which so, there's your sign that that's a car you can't afford. 
Exactly. But a lot of consumers, again, only think about really the monthly payment. And if they're comfortable with having a monthly car payment for ever or until they want to finance a car, that was kind of a lot of the, I guess, reasoning behind leasing. And I know that a lot of uh, business owners also lease because then they can kind of write that off as part of the business expense. And that's a good incentive for both on the dealer side and for businesses to kind of work, hammer that deal out. So they have, especially if you're in a client facing business and image matters for whatever reason. Um, I know a lot of people like to do that as well. Money Talks is MPB Think Radio's personal finance broadcast. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, and Ryder Taft, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. They're both chartered financial analysts. Ryder holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. This morning on Money Talks, we're talking about car buying with our guest, Joseph Yoon from Edmunds.com. And as promised, we've got a caller on the line. It's uh, Jeff from Mobile. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Hey, it's actually Jeffy. Okay, sorry about that. Go ahead. Hey, no problem. So, talked to a retired couple in 1996, and their whole philosophy was, where else can I get a $60,000 car for $27,000? All they did was lease. Every three years, they got a brand new car. Wasn't going to break down on them. Had a warranty. That was their main concern in retirement, not being stuck on the side of the road. And this is when Lincoln Town cars were all the rage, and that's all all they drove. Now, there we go. <clears throat> now you specify how many miles you want on your lease. Usually it's ten, like you said, but you can vary. It depends upon how much you drive, if you drive at all. But the main thing is you don't want to pay for a car. And three years, you want something else. Or we do have owners who they just get tired and they want something else. It's the proverbial new pair of shoes, new purse, that whole persona. I've had the car. Now I want something else. So you're not stuck in a car because the lease comes up, you trade in, or the dealership sends you a letter saying, there's a shortage of cars. We really like to have your car back. And then you're out of it. Now, you also have to ask yourself how much you drive like your tag team partner said. Yes. If you drive a lot, leasing may not be the best thing for you. Then well, you end up on the buying side. If, if you're a retiree, you're probably not driving as much. Uh, so that might be an exception not. there. And you can keep it under that mileage. Uh, but yeah, I, I think there's some good points here. There are reasons to get a lease. And it is, I would say, there's not good financial reasons to get a lease. But again, if your car is less of a strictly a transport to and fro and more of a this is my status symbol and this is this is what I care to spend money on. If you're if that's what you want, then absolutely go for that. Uh, the assurance of not breaking down on the side of the road. I mean, that was particularly important, I think, with Lincoln Town Cars in the 90s, but I do feel they're making cars a little bit better now. And again, keeping up with your regular maintenance, even several years down the line, should be good for you and your car ownership. And and there are also, also if that is your primary concern, you can just look at a more reliable brand uh, or something like that. But uh, that's a, there's some good points about about what reasons you might go for it. And, and, and exactly, it is not strict financial why you would get a specific car. But I will say I prefer to invest in assets that will appreciate. 
All right, uh, Jeffy, thanks for your perspective on that. So uh, th- I think the bottom line is, uh, like a lot of stuff, the, when we talk about personal finance, it comes down to it depends. <laughs> doing your research. Figure out what situation is best and, for you. And, and what we always talk about, uh, Ryder talks about a lot, what's important to you? Mm-hmm. What do you value? And that's where you're going to put your money. Uh, we've got another caller on the line. So this time we're going to say good morning to Vivian calling in from Gloucester. Go ahead, Vivian. You're on the air with us. Good morning. I wanted to know what is the difference between being pre-qualified and pre-approved. Joseph, any thoughts on that? Pre-approved means that you generally have a check in hand, basically, for whatever loan amount that you apply for. A quick approval just means that they'll do that process quickly. So you you will go into a dealer or you go into a bank and... Generally, if you're if you're been a customer with them for a long time or for a dealer, if you're a repeat customer, they know if they know you pay your bills, they can fast track that loan term through real fast, and so that's kind of the difference. All right, okay. Viv- go ahead, Vivian. That's okay. I don't have anything else. Okay. All right. Thanks for your call. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio, visiting today with Joseph Yoon, an insights analyst at Edmunds.com. Joseph, let's uh, transition our discussion just a bit. A lot of new technology is showing up in cars. Uh, One, though, that kind of irritates me, and this is a personal peeve, the commercial, it's for the car that you can drive with no hands and the ad shows the guy and he starts clapping and you know doing all sorts of stuff with his hands and i'm thinking to myself that's not really the intention of that sort of uh technology or whatever but anyway oh yeah i don't feel i don't feel too comfortable about a lot of that <laughs> are we are we still heading towards uh, driverless cars what are some of the new technologies that uh, are in cars these days i think what you might be referring to is what a lot of automakers call lane keep assist. Yes. Mm. And, and, and it does help you kind of stay in the middle of your lane. Uh, your experience might vary tremendously depending on road conditions and the hardware installed on the car. I've heard of sometimes the feature being kind of confused at reading the lines on the road because it was too sunny out or if it was raining so they couldn't really see the markers correctly. And so that's the thing, mm-hmm. I think it's generally helpful, but again, it's not something that you should rely on to keep your hands off your wheel. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there's no substitute for safe driving. Let, let's be clear. Well, yeah. and yeah. I and I would say we work with a lot of older clients that um, when you reach that point where you're not as secure on the road, your reflexes aren't as fast, you don't see as well, um, and that's what we hear them talking about looking for safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, things in their vehicles. And so some of those things are really the the braking assistance that becomes really important. Um, All those things that they want to make sure that they have a very secure and safe vehicle to drive in. I think in general, there is a lot of talk about self-driving cars and things like that. And I think ultimately the goal is to have safer roads, right? If 100% of our cars were self-driving cars and they all agreed on the same rules, then we should theoretically have no accidents. I think one of the problems right now is it's it's poorly marketed. And it's also poorly regulated such that there is no standard for what to do in weird situations. So you hear stories of, oh, well, in XYZ weird situation, it's going to default to running off of a bridge or 
running over the pedestrian. And 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 it, and when it does that, those are things where we're like, well, maybe that maybe that shouldn't be the rule. Maybe we need a better better rule so that everyone kind of knows what playing field that they're on. I just want to say I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to get in the car in my pajamas and my pillow and say, drive me across the country. Absolutely. It's the future we've been promised. And it will be not only very convenient, but also very safe, ultimately, for people. But uh, in the meantime, until that's perfected, uh, there's no substitute for safe driving. I figure maybe I'll be old enough that if something happens, I I would have just gone (laughs) in my sleep. It's the end. Go go back to the the days when older folks just didn't drive as much. Ah, stop that. You said it first, Nancy. Well, it's all about, you know, your car, especially here, Mm -hmm. is about your independence. And um, that's why you want to make sure you have a safe vehicle, because for most people around here, there's not mass transportation. Uh, There are no other options. And so you need to drive. Yeah, it definitely is uh, independence. I know when my grandfather was getting older and my uh, mother and father kind of took his cars away, he got upset. So they let him go out and sit in his car and listen to the radio. And so he felt that that was. (laughs) Uh, Joseph, do you have a favorite uh, new technology that's showing up in cars? I think my favorite, I have two favorites. My first one is the full phone integration that we have now between Android Auto and Apple Mm. CarPlay that completely mirrors my phone. As a young person, I'm as I guess most young people, I'm addicted to my phone. And uh, it's nice that when I get in the car and I plug it in or connect it to via Wi-Fi that I don't have to have it in my hand looking down at a tiny screen. It's up all, all up on my dash with a map, all my music. Mm-hmm. I can even send and receive texts you know, via audio, so I have to be careful. But um, that's all available. And I think my second favorite feature is what we talked about briefly, automatic braking. And I, even when I was paying attention, sometimes it's been really helpful. And generally, automatic braking is also packaged with radar-guided cruise control. So if you're driving in traffic or if you have a long way to go and you just want to kind of give your calves a rest, um, you can keep good distance with the car in front of you and generally keep you safe. And I think that's great. I think those are, that's a great point. Yeah. And by the way, Joseph, some of us older folks are attached to our phones as well. Yes, we are. <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> um, all right. So we talked about this. What sort of research we've mentioned a couple of especially, you know, about uh, buying or leasing. But what are some of the other research things that you should do maybe before you ever, you know, go to the dealership or a car lot? I think these days right now, the most important bit of research you can do is if the car you want is available. We talked That's about a great point. Yeah, Um, we talked about inventory a little bit and how it's improving a little bit. But a lot of the popular cars, especially the top selling models in each segment, are are popular for a reason. So they're always gone. And even if they're listed on the dealership website, a lot of the times they're already sold to a buyer that paid a deposit three months ago. I have an aunt in Northern California. She's been waiting for her RAV4 hybrid for nine months now. Wow. And so that's something you really should kind of take into consideration, especially if you need a car soon, Mm. because if you need a car soon and you're fixated on a car that they don't have or they won't have for longer than, you know, the time that you need a car. That's the wrong car for you. (laughs) That's the wrong car for you. Exactly. And so I think right now, knowing what's available out there to you, 
or finding out if you have enough time, get your name on a list. Go down to the dealer, get your name on a list so that when the cars do come in, you're the first in line to get it. Money Talks is MPB Think Radio's personal finance broadcast. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lottridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives and Ryder Taft, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. A reminder that Tuesdays at 10, listen live to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. That immediately follows our show. Our guest on Money Talks today is Joseph Yoon, insights analyst from Edmunds.com. Uh, so, Joseph, um, a lot of times it seems like car salesmen try to rush a car buyer into making a purchase that day. They don't want them to leave the car lot. Any suggestions on how a consumer can help resist those high-pressure sales? I think if you're feeling pressured, the best thing you can do is leave. No matter what they tell you, just leave. If you're not feeling comfortable with the salesperson and how he or she does business, it's going to leave a bad taste in your mouth for this giant purchase that you're making. And my recommendation is to find another dealership where maybe they won't do that to you. And and I think psychologically planning for that eventuality in your head and just yeah. knowing what you're going to say, because it can be so hard to think, oh, I don't want to be so rude. Well, one, they're being rude. You, you could just say, <laughs> I just need to think about this for 24 hours. Thank yeah. you. Or, I am looking at another vehicle. Thank you. Or I have a really hot date I need to go get ready for. Thank you. And then just leave, just you know, planning for that psychologically, I think is really helpful for a lot of people. Yeah. Maybe, um, maybe arrange a hot date so you you know you don't even no. have to. You'll be like, I've got I've got dinner reservations. I'm so sorry. I just, and you can't come. Is it a, a good idea to bring along someone who isn't buying a car? Maybe to be a sort of a neutral third party. I think so. If you're some people get impulsive and they need somebody to help them out, if you if that person you brought is that person, more power to you. Um, obviously, from the dealers and they don't care who you bring to the negotiation or to the dealership. It's more of somebody that you feel comfortable with, especially if, if, if it's your first time buying or if it's your first big purchase or maybe a you know, a big upgrade that you're making. I think it's, if you need somebody there to kind of help you feel at ease, go ahead. That's perfectly in your right to do so. Or if you're a woman, you might need to bring a man so that they will even talk to you and pay attention to you. Oh my gosh, I know. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to have somebody to test out the other seats while you're driving. So <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah. yeah and it's good to have someone who's And the just, back seat. The back seat. Yeah, somebody oh, needs to ab- ride the absolutely. back seat. Absolutely. Someone's got, you know, how much leg room do we have? And, and also just someone who can, while you're caught up in the moment of, oh, this car and oh, this price, yeah. someone who can just keep their head on their shoulders and think, okay, remember, these are the three things you wanted to look at. You need to yeah. look at these two other things. And someone who yeah. can also, again, help you with an excuse to get out of there be like all right let's you know it's time to We're go going to lunch <laughs> we yeah. have dinner reservations <laughs> yeah i had a friend that when i bought my car and uh, two things he helped me with one was i was looking at a car that i liked but it was the wrong color and there was another one that was a similar color and the guy's like oh it's only you know 12 dollars a month more on your on your note and so we want you to have the color you want and my friend took me aside and he said well you realize that that's 10 dollars over 6 years and so the amount is and whatever it was and i thought suddenly the color was not that important yeah that's a big deal <laughs> then when we went to finance he he was a whiz with finances and so we did that they go back in the little office with the finance person and they come out and they slide the paper down there with the offer and my friend looks at it and says 
that's not good enough. He's going to have to get a better deal than that. That's not oh, good great. And they went back. <laughs> Is that the best you can do, buddy? <laughs> they went back into their little office. They came back with a better deal. And then I, I think uh, they said after I ended up buying the car and afterwards they said that they called the guy the computer because he was so good with finances. <laughs> so if you have someone like that, definitely uh, bring them along. We've got some callers to get to. Let's go to Gary, who's called in from Memphis. Good morning, Gary. What? Uh, go ahead. Hey, good morning. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, great conversation this morning. I wanted to uh, share my experience on, uh, on uh, purchasing a new vehicle. I just recently purchased a new uh, electric vehicle, and I put a deposit down on it like 15 months ago before it actually came in. Of course, mm-hmm. it wasn't supposed to take that long. With, uh, that was supply chain issues and, and all of that. But I was, uh, overall, I was, I was kept well informed during the whole process. I put down a $1,000 fully refundable deposit, and mm-hmm. I could have gotten my deposit back and, and everything all the way up until uh, date of delivery. So uh, that's so that's was, a good point about making sure you can get that deposit back if you know because you that's that's a crazy situation that they didn't deliver it for fifteen months. But you know, understandable sometimes. But good point, uh, especially with the delays we're having these days. Yeah, and it does have all those bells and whistles as far as the adaptive cruise control and the auto drive. And I was a little nervous about it at first, but it works great. I'm really happy with it. All right, Gary, thanks for the call. Uh, let's uh, stay on the phone lines. Next, we'll go to uh, Macomb, I think it is. Chris is on the line. Go ahead. You're on the air with us. Uh, yes, I would like your opinion on extended warranty for a vehicle. After uh, 50,000 miles, I need. Uh, I don't have any warranty, and I wondered uh, what y'all think of buying the extended warranty. Uh, personally, I'm not a fan of it. Uh, often it is paying for something that you may or may not use. Uh, it's it's like insurance for any kind of possibility that could happen with the car. I do have folks I work with who are just sold on extended warranties, and they will love to tell me about how uh, something happened to the car and their extended warranty paid off. But I always come back and look at the numbers and say, you probably are better off just having some money in an emergency fund that can cover anything that might happen. And if it's a brand new car that you're purchasing, as you mentioned, you have warranty for a certain period of time, certain mileage. Um, Most cars these days are pretty reliable. And if you do your homework on the front end and get one that is and has low maintenance, you're probably better off just bypassing the extended warranty. Joseph, what are your thoughts? I agree with Nancy completely. If, like she said, most new cars these days are really, really reliable, and especially more so if you buy a more reliable brand. All right, uh, Chris, thanks for your call. Um, Joseph, got about a minute or so left, um, and we kind of kidded around, but I think it makes sense when you're on the car lot. You know, Nancy and Ryder talked about sitting in the other seat and in the back seat, that sort of thing. What about a test drive? Is it a good idea, and what should a potential car buyer kind of be looking for when they take a test drive? I think a test drive is a great idea, especially if you're not familiar with the vehicle, Mm. Um, because then you'll kind of sit in it, you'll drive it, and does it match up to the fantasy that you had in your head? If it doesn't, how does that make you feel about the car? It might change your mind about buying the car. Make sure you know what all the buttons do. Exactly. And uh, hopefully, if you have a good salesperson, they'll help you out with all of that, hopefully teach you how to install your phone on the thing so you don't have to yell into your phone holding it in your hand <laughs> which I see so many I people see, yeah, do I see that all the time <laughs> and so I think 
and you know most new cars these days are so well made but you should just sit in it and make sure you feel good in it it for whatever reason if something feels off something doesn't sound right is there a rattle that you didn't expect to hear or is there certain noises if it's a problem then that should get addressed or if it's you know something that you're not entirely familiar with hopefully the salesperson can help you out and answer that question for you and so i think it is a great idea to drive the car i generally don't because i don't know i'm irresponsible i guess but you know, <laughs> <laughs> but you're honest you're honest joseph all right you'll get a new one in three years thanks joseph that it will wrap us up for today money talks is a production of mississippi public broadcasting think radio funded in part by generous financial support from listeners to hear today's show or a previous show you can visit money talks mpbonline.org or listen to the podcast by searching for Money Talks. Our show, uh, the podcast producer for MPB is Jermaine Flood and our call screener today was Jason Klein. So for Dr. Nancy Lotcher-Janderson, Ryder Taff and our guest Joseph Yoon, I'm Kevin Farrell inviting you to join us every Tuesday at 9 for Money Talks, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.